early 1990s, you had a bunch of statistics floating around painting a picture of the world as a horrifying dystopia for women. Who Stole Feminism by Christina Hoff Summers was published in 1994 and primarily sought to expose these false statistics, but goes on to describe a new breed of feminist thought and strategy that used sloppy scholarship to sell a broad patriarchy narrative. We're still uh, suffering from this today. <laughs> so as always, we're going to start with the content, go into an analysis, discussion, and then do some big picture stuff. Okay, first, opening with anorexia. There was this statistic going around that anorexia fatality rate was 150,000 per year. It was repeated by a bunch of major feminist theorists around the time. And then it turned out, once the author looked into it and tried to get to the source of the actual statistic, that this was a number describing the number of sufferers, not deaths. And remember, this was repeated all over the place. The correct figure was actually less than 100 per year. So it's a pretty stark difference. There were other statistics like this one, such as the fact that battery was responsible for more birth defects than all other causes combined, which turned out to be complete bunk. Then we get kind of a breakdown of feminism, and the author makes a distinction here. So equity feminism is first-wave feminism. First-wave feminists sought equality before the law, and that's all that they were looking for. These are people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, someone who went as far as to cite the Declaration of Independence and Thomas Jefferson, and just say that all of the rights and freedoms and the way that the law is applied need to be applied equally to women. So things like the right to vote, to hold property, and to attend law school, these were things that were fought for by first-wave feminists. Then we got this feminism of resentment, and the author calls this gender feminism. And they emphasize this consciousness of victimization, which is just curious on its face. It's, it's as if they want to say that you might think that nobody stole your car, but they actually did, if you really think about it. Even if you have access to the car, you have the keys, and it's in your driveway. Still, you're a victim. It has been stolen. Then we go through a number of different theorists, including one French who says that all men are guilty if any man does any particular thing that's against the interests of women. Which, of course, exactly the wrong everything when it comes to holding people responsible. There's this issue at Vassar where students were falsely accused of some kind of misconduct of a bunch of male students. And some feminist theorists around the time said they were not really innocent, even though they hadn't done it, because they could have easily done what they were accused of doing. Some students in one feminist class, they actually created this notice, and it had a pictures or names, or a list of names or pictures, one, one of the two, of students, and it said above it, notice, these men are potential rapists. Now, they had just picked random names out of the school directory for this. There's this issue at the Boston Globe where there's kind of this crackdown where they decided that the use of sports metaphors was problematic when it came to discussions and writing and that kind of thing. They wanted to de-emphasize the work basketball league that uh, more disproportionately men played in because it created an old boys club. There was a problem with the strutting zone. <laughs> there was a zone, apparently, where men tended to pace before they went on air or when they were trying to think something out. And the very feminist women at the Boston Globe had a problem with this because it seemed like a male space or something. And one of the anchors, or one of the employees, called a guy pussy whipped for not playing basketball one day and there was this outrage and he was fined now remember i think i told you this this was published in 1994 so this is before 
all the craziness that we've experienced since. Then we move on to the academy, where we have uh, some of some similar issues, where they one particular feminist theorist wanted to replace the word seminars with ovulars, seminars because it sounded too much like semen with ovulars, and of course history with her story. I'm sure everybody's heard that by now. We get a, got a proliferation of women's studies classes that did not contain disciplined scholarship, just feminist ideology. And the point was to make things more women-centered, so rather than merit-centered. The author describes these things as illiberal, anti-intellectual, and lacking of humor was kind of the direction that things were going in. And we end up with this, these two definitions of history. What actually happened is one definition of history, just trying to figure out what actually happened, and this kind of developing of a narrative of history based on somebody's perspective was the other definition that we're getting now. The problem was, of course, there was no way of adding women back into the narrative to make them as consequential as men were historically. You know, for better or worse, I mean, generally it's got to be worse, <laughs> men had a far outsized influence on all of the consequential things that happened in history. So trying to just insert more women generally doesn't make sense. And most importantly, and as is pointed out by the author, and as I, I'm sure I've pointed out before, is that most men, the vast majority of men, had no consequence whatsoever and did nothing of significance. It's only when you put people in these identity baskets, that's the only time that you actually get to say, okay, well, we're going to vicariously be, be accomplished based on this. Most men and most women were not involved in any way and were not consequential in any way and haven't accomplished much of anything. If people could just come to realize that and accept it, then we would have a lot fewer issues around all this stuff. But the point was, this is about tearing down men and building up women. So it's a zero-sum kind of a situation. And even when they would describe historical figures, when it came to men, they would point out you know, flaws, whether they were fatal flaws or not. They'd point out flaws in men, but not in women figures that were described. And then you ended up with this filler feminism. Like in this one case where you had descriptions of Indian society that would say that uh, women were not chiefs, but they still exerted a whole bunch of influence over what the tribe did. So you just have these pointless filler paragraphs just to insert women where it didn't make any sense. And of course, the removal of motherhood or marriage as a worthy goal was a long-term consequence. The loss of basic historical and civics knowledge, the comparative knowledge, it would be like people would know who Harriet Tubman was, but specifically wouldn't know who Winston Churchill was and wouldn't know that Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. Those kinds of things are about Thomas Jefferson. Then we get one theorist, I think this was Macintosh, who we get this crazy off-the-deep-end stuff where hierarchical approach is suddenly suspect, genius as a concept, somebody being a genius is suddenly suspect, logic and rationality are considered phallocentric and tracked back to the Greeks, so it was problematic, logic and rationality. There's this attack on rational standards and methods, and even this weird application of this concept where the theorist said that men, the male approach to nature is to know it, but not like know it in a sexual sense. Like when you use that word, you've known somebody, so that men approach nature in a way that they're trying to, in effect, rape nature. Yes, this seems on the level and totally rational. Of course, they didn't like the rationality, that was the point. And then we had this concept from Macintosh about vertical knowing versus horizontal knowing. 
and that women and people of color were lateral thinkers. Now, obviously, this is unbelievably patronizing, ridiculous, and treats people on the basis of their identity as a monolithic group, so it's it's insane. But this thinker said that, okay, there's this vertical way of knowing where it's competitive, and it's like, uh, she described it as a phase one vertical thinking. There are these phases that you go through to get to phase five where you are knowing things in the right way. But anyway, phase one is the winner lose kill or be killed, war, competition, and that's the vertical thinking that that's how you come to knowledge is through those processes. But horizontal thinking is like getting to know each other and being emotionally, (laughs) I don't know, happy with each other. And that's how you get to know things somehow. But there were these five phases and phase five, once you got there, was some kind of knowledge utopia. But there's this uh, apparent feminist alternative to masculinist curriculum now that they wanted to perpetuate, and science was considered masculinist. And we get a lot of this rhetoric nowadays, but even things like... uh, So the... (laughs) The phrase Big Bang Theory was considered problematic because it was like too aggressive, (laughs) the Big Bang Theory, and warlike terms in cell biology were considered a problem. Just using warlike terms as analogous to what cell bio- how cell biology works, that was a problem. And there's this weird belief that there was a special female way of knowing that's just like any other sexist perspective in history. Of course, these theorists like Macintosh would assert that the women's way of knowing was superior, but the author points out that it allows men to patronize and denigrate women as thinking with the heart, not the head. And that women would end up in this female ghetto where they wouldn't be reading the best books, wouldn't be determining things based on merit, but would just be emotionally figuring things out based on this feminist alternative curriculum. Then we've got a feminist classroom, and women, a feminist perspective was supposed to be a great feminist textbook. And we've got Rutgers courses. Now remember, this is the early and (laughs) mid-90s. So it sounds like the peak of what's going on today, but this is way back then. So Rutgers courses where people were graded based on performing outrageous liberating act was part of their grade, keeping a journal of experiences and emotions, and in-class consciousness raising groups. These were a big part of their grade in this particular class at Rutgers. The author looked at hundreds of these kinds of courses and determined they were unscholarly, they were intolerant of dissent, they used gimmicks, and it was was a hilarious turn that a hundred years ago women had to fight to be taught math and science and now they just wanted to have their feelings be heard and discussed in the classroom setting and it plays into old gender stereotypes and there are all these rules to take the course this is in support of the unscholarly and intolerant of dissent and the use of gimmicks assertions that the author made but there were these rules to take these courses where you would have to acknowledge oppression based on racism classism sexism that it exists you'd have to acknowledge that ahead of time before you even entered the class. It was something that was put beyond question, not something that you could challenge when you were in the class. And that you had been systematically taught misinformation your whole life. That's what the system does, is teaches you misinformation. You have to always assume that groups do the best they can, so you can't question the groups or the motivations of those groups or the abilities of those groups. And absolute confidentiality, which is of course a sign of lack of scholarship when you can't be transparent about the things that you're talking about. There's this one Miss Albrecht who was teaching feminist ideology who talked about how what's the point of scholarship if it's not to better society? And of course, the point of scholarship is to figure out what's true. That's what it should be, not to effectuate some kind of a activist creed. They would have these campus bleed-ins, and menstruation in general was just this common theme amongst feminist courses. 
And when the author would challenge a lot of these professors and say, okay, why aren't you offering the other side of all these issues? Then they would say something to the effect of the dominant culture has them the rest of the time, so there's no need to teach the other side in the classroom. And it's so weird because you have to think so much of this kind of teaching just won. You know, it won long term for decades now because we've got so many people coming out of these schools who are thinking in these terms. And people just know this rhetoric now. But there were these Scandinavian professors who were not liked because they weren't thinking in the proper ways. And there were charges brought of harassment against them. And the complaints against them, uh, they were that they made a patriarchal interpretation of a book. Remember, they're trying to get these people fired uh, and claiming harassment. There was a patriarchal interpretation of a book. They didn't read another particular book that the these particular students thought was important. And one of them had made a poor... Or greeting to a student at one point. These are methods, <laughs> like they had to withdraw this stuff, but these were methods they were trying to use based on these criteria to get rid of professors as harassers. And these classes, they'd screen out phase one, what was called phase one thinkers, right at the beginning. They'd have these questionnaires that if you answered them in the wrong way, you know, that talked about evidence or having some kind of competition between theories or that kind of stuff, they'd just screen you out of the classes. And people like uh, Joan Didion, Susan Sontag, heavily criticized these things, along with Camille Paglia, or Paglia, I know it's pronounced Paglia by some people. I always say Paglia, but I believe that Camille Paglia, when they were talking to Jordan Peterson, they said they were non-binary. So Camille Paglia deserves all the respect in the universe, and I will do my best (laughs) to maintain that. But definitely they have a hell of a lot of consequence to say about all this sort of stuff. Then we get into this lengthy discussion of disparities and how there was so much wrong with just asserting these disparities like in self-esteem between boys and girls and call-outs in class and SAT scores. There were so many factors that went into these different things and so much disingenuous assumption that was underlying these assertions that the disparities are some kind of a blight against women, you know, that kind of thing. There's a lot in there, so we won't get into the details. But disparity does not equal discrimination, suffice it to say. There was the Super Bowl Sunday thing that this statistic came out and was repeated all over the place in the media that domestic violence increased 40% on Super Bowl Sunday. And this was completely unsupported. But again, it was repeated all over the place. And then there's this issue with battery where Biden at the time, Joe Biden, claimed that there were three to four million battered women by a spouse or their significant other in a year when the number was really 100,000. But it was one of those numbers that got pulled out by somebody somewhere on just completely shoddy scholarship, and then it just gets repeated out there. And then furthermore, the batterers were actually mostly repeat batterers. So 80% of the people who engaged in battery in this context had criminal records. And 50% specifically had violent criminal records. So it's not the average person, which is the kind of thing that's trying to be persuaded here, is that it's the normal guy. Just anybody could be this batterer when that's not the case. Just like with car accidents, you'd say, okay, it's just evenly spread over everybody. It's not. There are like 20% of drivers are... responsible for like 80% of car accidents. It's the same thing when it comes to battery. And then you have all these problems when it comes to researching these topics, to actually researching it. So people get intimidated. There's this absence of rigorous review. Periodicals will uncritically indulge feminists and publish the stuff without using the same criteria and standards that they would otherwise use. And it's a really patronizing and sexist way to approach this particular part of the discipline. 
the author talks about the whole rule of thumb thing. And I remember somebody was talking about this again. I know um, the idea of the rule of thumb being you can hit your wife with a stick as long as it's not any thicker than your thumb. Then you can beat her with it. But this was apocryphal. It's not something that actually came out of British or American common law. It was There was a vague mention of a thumb in two decisions that went the other direction by two judges at a certain point. And then a feminist interpreted that and decided on this rule of thumb, used the phrase rule of thumb, and just attributed it to British and American common law, even though there were laws against beating your your wives at the time. But it, it's supposed to be to show that America was just that kind of a place where you could do that. And the author makes the important point that sound public policy cannot be made with inaccurate information. And then she goes into the rape research and where the number, the one in four statistic that, I mean, I've heard within the last year, somebody bring that up and was cited by Biden again. And the government in general cited it repeatedly when it's just, it's completely wrong. It includes anybody who had a sexual encounter and then regretted it the next day is included in it. There were a whole bunch of other problems with it as well. Even people who specifically said they didn't believe they had been raped would be included in the numbers. And many of the people who were included in this ended up going back with the partners that they accused. And then you have you have some other theorists like this guy, Kilpatrick. He got a number of 1 in 20 as opposed to 1 in 4, but nobody cared. Nobody, you know, reported on it or said anything about it. And then he changed his criteria a little bit, got a higher number, and then suddenly he's in the headlines. And the problem was this became activism rather than research. There was one researcher, and she got a number of 1 in 50, and then was pressured to say that they were higher, and recounted how she had been subject to that kind of pressure. And one researcher at New York Magazine actually checked campus police reports and found only 1,000 reported cases in the entire country over the course of a year, which is, of course, a, a, a tiny fractional number as compared to what had been said. And importantly, campus rates were 30 times lower than the general population. So what would happen is that you would have these public universities who are spending a tremendous amount of resources uh, to try to help women on campus when the resources really were tremendously needed outside of campus, where it was a, it was a major problem. Important things to keep in mind are that American society is exceptionally violent in general. So one of the things that is brought up is that a lot of this has to do with the patriarchal nature of American society, even though much more patriarchal societies like Greece or Portugal or Japan are significantly less violent. So it's not the patriarchal tendencies, as far as we can tell. And then we've got this, the theory and strategy that comes out now, where there's this, uh, where these new theorists, the new breed of feminists, believe in this invisible oppressive force that's internalized by women, that they are being mysteriously manipulated by this force, and cite Michel Foucault, Discipline and Punish. I remember reading this in undergrad, but he specifically does not like democracy in general. He suggests that people find themselves subject to disciplines, disciplines like school and factories, etc., and they internalize and police themselves, and this constitutes a kind of microfascism. A lot of political theorists characterize his conclusions as infantile leftism, this idea that everyone has a gulag in their heads. So there are a few adherents by political theorists and philosophers, but feminists love Foucault's characterization here and his theories here. And then the strategy became you have to challenge that women are doing well in any area of society. They must be doing poorly so that you can sell this idea. 
that there's some kind of a patriarchal force against women. So things like the wage gap. Of course, we've talked about the wage gap many times. The factors that are pointed out by the author here are a shorter work week, less experience, work fewer hours, childbearing, all those things impacted. Simone de Beauvoir, you know, one of the kind of pillars in this movement, specifically said that no woman should be allowed to stay home. And we've got this weird situation where women are regarded as badly brought up children who must be redirected. So preferences that they might have are inauthentic and that other women have to determine, you know, the new feminists have to be the ones who determine what an authentic preference is. And then there are these pressures for new storylines and media like movies and TV and that kind of thing for female and male characters where you have to write respectable romances and they targeted alpha males and virginal women as character tropes and trying to get rid of those. And it's just weird to just imagine rejecting books for not reflecting traditional family values. Of course, that was something historically that was an issue, but imagine going back to that. And one person talked about how people confuse fiction with self-help literature. That's what one author said about it. And then this particular author goes in to talk about how it's weird to have Big Sister watching, you know, whatever you do, and how much power that would take, and how that can be abused. Okay, so, a lot going on, we're almost, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to cut this down. Um, so, my analysis, it was, the fundamental process was to follow the stat to the source. And it was really effective to see, once you get to the bottom, how much these theorists didn't care about verifying the stats and how much they were just trying to sell a particular ideology. And it wasn't just that they were a little wrong or something or fudged the numbers just a little bit. It was often extremely wrong. And it would be repeated by media outlets and government representatives all over the place. It became an industry, like there was this pressure to get these kind of extreme numbers so that you could sell these narratives so you can get more funding and and all that. But the point of this book was specifically to call out the less rigorous scholarship, so that was much appreciated. A lot of really important information, ideas, this whole thing, uh, shining light on this idea of gendered ways of knowing, that's such a shockingly stupid concept to try to put people in boxes like that. And it's so weird that it's just a reflection of stereotypes that we're supposed to have fought off. And it's a clear attack on the meritocracy in general. I certainly blame just the professors and administrators on all of our campuses who are not maintaining that rigorous standard to make sure the things that they're doing, that their institution is producing, are based on, okay, what is the most meritocratic as opposed to, okay, what ideology are we selling this week? So big picture-wise, we have to establish shared objective standards. It's extremely vital to get back to that where we all have a shared standard, and that's what we all abide by when it comes to objectivity, attacking one's own bias, attacking the other person's bias, and merit first. No space at all should be given to somebody who is just restating some vague moral proposition. So merit first, no identity-based knowledge or anything else identity-based. That's what we should be looking at. So anyway, uh, that's the that's this episode. This is a long one. Um, but this is the last coffee house. I really appreciate it. I hope all is well. I will see you on the next one. Mm-hmm.